Welcome to the Opioid Voices podcast. I'm Amanda Hiraishi, the executive producer. Opioid Voices is part of the American Opioid Project, a crowdsourced encyclopedia of the opioid crisis that will help the public understand how the crisis was experienced in all 50 states from a variety of perspectives. Share your story today by visiting www.americanopioid.org. The following interview is with Pam Lehman, a journalist at The Morning Call. This interview was conducted by Jamal Khan and took place on September 27, 2018. Hi, Pam. Uh, this is Jamal Khan from the American Opioid Podcast. Uh, how are you doing? Hi, Jamal. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, sorry for uh, uh, the delay in calling. Um, uh, is this still a good time to talk? Sure, sure, yeah. Okay, great. Um, so I guess uh, to start off, uh, do you have any questions about, like, I guess my podcast or my interview process? Uh, no, I don't. I, I listened to a couple episodes, and, and your questions all made sense to me, so I think I'm ready. Uh, you are, uh, <laughs> excuse me, at Harvard, are you a student or a professor? I wasn't clear on that. Uh, so uh, I am a Harvard graduate, uh, so I went there for uh, law school, uh, got okay. my JD there, and then uh, after that, uh, I did a two-year uh, fellowship in the federal government, uh, the Presidential Management Fellowship. So for part of that, I worked on opioid policy issues for the uh, Obama administration. Uh, and so that was, my, that was my first real sort of exposure to the topic, and I continued to read up on it and research it afterwards. And uh, I, I created the podcast uh, with the intention that uh, it would be a resource for members of the public who wanted to know more about the opioid crisis, basically what caused right. it, what the consequences were, and sort of the approaches being taken to alleviate it and to save lives. Um, so that's sort of it's my a really inter- it's, it, it's a really interesting podcast, and I know there's so many of them that are out there, but um, you know, I'm trying to point some people in the direction of your podcast as well who listen to podcasts. Oh, cool. <laughs> to help them understand more about the crisis. So, really, I appreciate you reaching out to me to, to do it. Thank you. Uh, no, no, thank you. For, uh, yeah, that's, that's the exactly the intended, and intended purpose of the... Right, right. <laughs> Great. Uh, okay, so I guess to start off, uh, is it okay if I record this interview? Sure. Okay, great. Uh, so I guess to, just to start off... Uh, I guess it would be helpful if you gave uh, just a brief description of your background and your current beat that you're covering. Sure. Um, so I am a reporter for The Morning Call. It's a um, the third largest newspaper in the state in Pennsylvania. And um, I've worked as either a reporter or an editor um, of various daily newspapers for the past 25 years. Um, and I've worked for the Morning Call since 2003, and since about 2013 or so, um, I am one of several reporters who are on the opioid team here at the newspaper. Um, so we are reporters who uh, write almost exclusively, uh, in addition to other duties, about the opioid crisis and the effects that it's having on residents in this area 
area, the Lehigh Valley, and nationally, um, you know, as, as our beat. Uh, so we first started noticing uh, an uptick in a large number of drug deaths in this area, probably beginning in 2012, 2013, and um, that was the year that my editors made the decision that, you know, this is a... This is a pretty huge topic. It's it's convoluted, as you know. There's all these different aspects to it, um, and decided to focus. So now there's three, four reporters who um, were all considered to be part of the opioid team and and write a lot of stories about it. Um, we started out with with really documenting the deaths um, due to opioids, and even that was a, a not an easy process to do. Um, and maybe within the past year or so, we've tried to uh, focus our stories more on recovery and, um, you know, drug treatment and other treatments that are available for people that uh, are suffering from an opioid addiction. So I don't have any lack of, uh, you know, it's such a big topic that I'm glad the paper, um, and, and I feel like there aren't many maybe mid-sized papers that do this, felt like it was an important enough um, beat and topic to dedicate the resources of several reporters to doing it. Um, and we've been able to do, I think, a lot of innovative stories um, because of that. I guess in your coverage, what was the toughest article that you had to write? Um, it's really difficult to... Um, the, the stories about the deaths, are, are probably the ones that are the most difficult. So in um, Pennsylvania, we have coroners that are um, death investigators that are tasked with determining when somebody dies, either under suspicious circumstances or unknown circumstances. Um, they investigate the death and determine a cause and manner of death. Um, but it's the record keeping with the coroners is kind of real hit or miss in Pennsylvania. Um, we were really frustrated to find out that, that there was not a really good up to date um, number of deaths that that we could you know look at and say you know uh, without any hesitation that you know X number of people died due to opioid overdoses or opioid addiction you know in in the past year. So the way that we were able to do that is it took um, several reporters. We went to the to the county courthouses, and the coroners have to file an annual report um, with, let's say, a page for each death that they investigate. And these reports are huge. They're thousands of pages long. Um, so you would have to go through page by page by page by page and, and copy those that that had any indication of drug use or, or drug overdose death. Um, and then to make those stories more personal and, and to not only say, here's the figures of how many people died of uh, opioid overdoses in our area, you know, we looked at deaths of, you know, the youngest victims, the oldest victims, and um, talking to family members who lost somebody to addiction, already there's a stigma there that most people aren't really willing to um, talk about publicly. You know, if, if you have a loved one that dies from a drug overdose, and I understand that there's not a lot of people that are willing to, you know, step up and talk about the struggles or how that happened because there's still this awful stigma involved um, with addiction and, and drug use. 
Um, so it was difficult for us to, you know, find families to talk to us, and now it's becoming more and more, um, people are becoming a little more uh, willing to address it. I'd say probably one of the most difficult stories that I had to do would be to um, talk to parents who, who lost really young children. I mean, we have some victims that were in their teens when they died. And uh, um, we also did a story recently on um, people who address addiction in their loved ones' obituaries, who who come right out in the obituary and say, you know, Jane Smith died because of her struggles with addiction. Um, so I was, I'm always glad that people are willing to share those stories with us, but it's, um, you have to kind of, I've, I've had a lot of interviews where we're crying at the table together, and I'm okay with that because I feel like if you lose your human side in telling a story, you're not you're not doing justice to that person's life. So um, the stories about death are difficult. I like doing more <laughs> stories about recovery, um, but those are also a little bit um, sensitive as well because when somebody is in recovery and we write a story. I we worry that they're going to relapse or something's going to happen in their lives. So you become kind of personally invested in these people's lives. Um, and while I try to remain as objective as I can, you can't help but be touched by their struggles and, you know, wanting a normal life. And how do you do that after addiction? Mm-hmm. Was there anything that you came across in the course of your reporting that changed your perspective on the opioid crisis? Definitely. Um, We've had, at the morning call uh, this year so far, I think we've had four of them, um, we've had what we're calling roundtable discussions. And we invite a panel of guests in to speak. Um, They speak to each other, they speak to the reporters, and we ask them questions about you know, their role in uh, the opioid crisis and and, um, to just share their stories about it. Um, We had one for just law enforcement. We had one with um, a variety of doctors, you know, pain uh, medication doctors, GYN, a dentist. Um, We've had had some with um, family members who who have, um, you know, other family members that are in recovery or have dealt with addiction. And I think what really changed my focus is participating in these roundtables and having medical professionals describe to us several things. One, that addiction is a disease. Um, you know, it's it, 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 it's like heart you know heart disease. It's like diabetes. It's like anything else. But it's very difficult for us as a society to look at addiction as a disease. Um, we want to look at it as a moral failing. Sure, um, and that really kind of changed my perspective in this. To know that you know there aren't people waking up saying, you know what, today I'm going to become a heroin addict. You know, it's just uh-huh. a slow, gradual decline usually that happens very quickly. Um, so, so learning about the brain mechanisms behind addiction and and how that works really changed my perspective when it came to writing. Um, and one other thing recently that I just learned that we're, I'm just kind of um, broaching the subject is um, relapse and how relapse plays a huge role in recovery. Um, again, you know, like we would have paramedics say to us, you know, it's really frustrating that we would go to these heroin overdoses, the same house, 
two or three times in a row or several times a week and and we'd have to um, treat somebody for a heroin overdose again and how frustrating it would be for them because they'd say, you know, I could be helping somebody down the street that's having a heart attack, but I'm helping somebody that chose to shoot up heroin for the 12th time today and and how frustrating that is. But again, to speak to medical professionals who talk about, you know, relapse is, is part of recovery. Um, but it's, again, hard for us to grasp that. We don't look at somebody, let's say, who um, is diabetic and goes into diabetic shock as, you know, a moral failing or, or, you know, that they purposefully allowed themselves to do that. But when somebody is dealing with addiction and relapses, you know, we don't look at that as part of the process, but it definitely is part of that process. So those are probably two of the things that I most recently learned that really kind of changed my perspective when it comes to writing and reporting. Um, and recently, I've also tried to become more aware of the words that I'm using in my stories. You know, for the longest time, we wrote stories about addicts and a recovering addict. And we've just recently moved away from doing that and say, a person who is addicted or a person who is in recovery. And we're trying to be more selective with our word choices as well. So... I've learned a lot over the past several years when it comes to addiction and recovery and the opioid crisis, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's interesting what you said about uh, relapse. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that uh, someone with opioid use disorder may relapse as many as five or six times before getting on a sustainable path to recovery. Uh, And I think awareness of that reality is something that could maybe help people be more empathetic towards them and also for uh, the affected persons themselves to have hope that, if, you know, even though exactly. they realized, they, they, you know, there's still hope for them. Right, right. And that, and that to me was a really, again, an interesting perspective. Um, we're kind of also, another thing that's maybe changed a little bit with um, our reporting process is we recently looked at um, trauma and how trauma can affect or um you know, linked to, to maybe why people become addicted. Um, it was interesting to have some medical professionals recently say to us, you know, now, you know, instead of saying to people like, well, why did you start using drugs? You know, they're, they're more questioning them like, well, tell me about what your childhood was like or what was it like where you grew up and, and how being from, you know, a single parent household or a household where some family members struggled with addiction, um, coming from poverty, coming from an area where gangs are prevalent, how how all of these um, factors really play a role into addiction and how some people are more prone to, you know, prone to it happening in their life. So um, it's really been an interesting topic. And like I said, there's just, it seems like there's, still, there's, there's way more stories than I can ever get to, but I'm going to keep telling. So... Yeah, I can imagine in the, you know, in the course of reporting, you've interviewed so many different kinds of people from so many backgrounds. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, what kinds of interview subjects have been the most helpful in illuminating the opioid crisis in your area of Pennsylvania? Um, you know, I would say it's it's been kind of there's there's a there's a few you know perspectives. There's the recovering addict. There's somebody who's in recovery. Um, hearing their stories and, and what they've had to go through, how they've 
started using drugs, how they, you know, procured drugs, how it affected their family. Um, those are always really, you know, important. We want to um, hear their stories and, and understand that not everyone goes into addiction the same way or falls into addiction the same way. Um, but I'm really um, struck to by medical experts, um, those in mental health crisis counseling, psychologists to to really help us understand the all the factors behind addiction that we don't even realize ourselves. You know, what it's it's we've had a lot of readers say to us, um, why should I care about this person who chooses to use heroin? You know, like why if if it's a family if I have a family that's feeling for me to support their habit who, you know, um, doesn't want to pay attention to their kids because they're in addiction, you know, why should I care? Um but we found that a, a number of town meetings that we've gone to, um, you know, people are, are starting to understand more that, like I said before, it's not a moral failing. Um, people from every uh, age, gender, race, you know, um, uh, social status are affected by this. It's not, it's not just a, a strung out, unemployed person who, you know, is is doing heroin. These are professionals in a lot of circumstances. These are people who have jobs. These are people who have families. Um, so telling their stories, to me, is, is the most important. I've also been struck, too, as I was saying, with going with town meetings recently, and we've had a lot of them about the opioid crisis here. It's just even in general asking the crowd, like, how many people know somebody who's affected by opioid addiction or the opioid crisis? And, I mean, a sea of hands goes up. It's like nearly every person in the room can can somehow relate to it in one way or another because if it's not their family member, it's a friend, it's a neighbor, it's, you know, somebody that they knew of from high school. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, in in our dedication to writing about this crisis that, that people are understanding that um, it's not a moral failing, the stigma should be erased when it comes to talking about addiction and that there's no one... Um, silver bullet. There's no one answer for everybody um, when it comes to treating or dealing with addiction. Um, some people can use medication to, to help with addiction. For other people, that doesn't work. Um, so that's been really interesting, too, is learning all the different types of drug treatment that are available and, and how and why they work for various people. Uh, what would you say was the single most memorable experience that you had while covering the opioid crisis? Um, I would say it was um, at one of those roundtable discussions that we had recently was having a drug and alcohol um, administrator of a, of a program here in, in Lehigh County um, say to me after the after our, this really great discussion that we had and we're exploding with story ideas and we're all excited to go start writing. And he looked at me and he said, you know, hey, you know, what are you doing personally to try to, to, try to uh, combat this, to try to help with it? Would you be willing to carry naloxone? And I was like, I didn't think about it. And I'm like, um, sure, because we're in um, a downtown section where the newspaper is located Right across the street from us is a bus depot, and I would say every day, numerous times a day, there are calls for opioid overdoses 
you know, with, within just a few feet of our building. Um, it's not hard to see people that are suffering um, from what looks to be, you know, uh, opioid uh, addiction. Um, so for him to say that to me, like, hey, would you be willing to carry naloxone and would you be willing to use it if you if you had to? I said, I definitely would. Um, I have several family members who take prescribed uh, opioids for pain medication, and it kind of was always in the back of my mind, like, what happened if they took too much medication? Are they misplaced the pills? Are they, you know, would I be able to, to help them? So myself and several other reporters here, um, we did training to use naloxone. We became certified to use it, and we all have it with us in our purses or in our bags or in our cars. And um, there have been a couple times I went to grab for it, you know, thinking I was going to need to use it uh, out on the street, you know, right near our newspaper. It hasn't happened yet. But that was probably one of um, the, the parts of this covering this crisis that the most. I was like, you know what, this is an easy thing that I can do. We wrote about how to, how anyone can be trained, how anyone can get naloxone, um, how it's safe, it's effective, it's only going to help somebody that's suffering from an opioid overdose. You're not going to hurt anyone by using it. Um, and I had several other people call me afterwards and say, you know what, you made that sound so easy. I just I went out and did it myself. So that was that was a really great feeling for me and and something that I would feel like I could make a difference and not only. The words we make, the videos that we record, the podcasts that we do, but um, just carrying around with me in my purse every day. In the, I guess over the, you know, you've been covering this for some time. Do you feel that the opioid crisis is slowly, are things turning around in your area, or do you think there are still significant challenges ahead? Uh, when it comes to uh, education and awareness, I feel like we are we're getting there. <laughs> um, we're we're miles ahead of where we were several years ago when it comes to um, writing about all the topics that are involved in this. Um, but deaths here still continue to occur on a record high basis. I mean, our most recent um, drug deaths were up. Well, I want to say. 20 to 50 percent in in several of the major counties that we cover, um, and that we, you know authorities believe in the in the record support are due to the presence of fentanyl um, becoming more and more um, available. It's, you know, showing up more in heroin. Um, so the deaths aren't stopping, which is concerning because everybody. It seems like there's so many agencies on board. There's so many law enforcement officials on board. There's these politicians that are all aware of the crisis and, and what's happening, but the deaths are continuing to rise. Um, and we've had several medical experts tell us, um, you know, we, not, we may not see the change in deaths for years yet. And somebody projected 2024 for us recently. And to think about that, um, you know, we are still going to see these record number of deaths year after year is haunting. It's just, um, it's a really difficult thing to, to comprehend, but there, you know, as I said earlier, there's no one answer to this crisis. It's going to take a bunch of different agencies on board, health officials, law enforcement, regular people, family members, um, to, to help educate people, make them aware of it, and hopefully, um, 
you know, stem this tide of deaths. But uh, so I, I'm I'm happy that more people are aware of the of the topic and are supporting um, our journalism, you know, around it. Uh, we we definitely get a good response from people whenever they see these articles and. And so I feel like education is better. The stigma maybe is wearing back a bit, but the the deaths continue to rise in this area, and I'm not quite sure when that will stop or get any better. Well, if somebody gave you a magic wand that allowed you to change any policy uh, in order to more effectively alleviate the crisis, uh, which policy would you zero in on? I would want more drug treatment facilities to have beds available for people who are not insured. Um, you know, in one of our recent roundtables, it was really disheartening to hear that, you know, there's this huge, pop, you know, uh, population that are suffering from addiction, they don't have insurance, and getting into drug treatment is incredibly difficult. Um, and to have drug treatment specialists say to us, you know what, if you have insurance, you're 100% guaranteed to get a bed in a drug treatment facility. If you don't have insurance, it's it's really difficult to find a bed for you. Um, and I understand this, that drug treatment facilities are like any other business where they have to make a profit, they have to make money to pay their bills, to pay their employees, to keep the lights on. Um, but I feel like if there were more... Um, treatments available for people that don't have insurance, um, whether that be through medication-assisted treatment or whether it be through inpatient, um, you know, drug treatment. I think inpatient is really something that's critically needed, and if you don't have insurance, it's really difficult to find. So if I had a magic wand, that's the one thing I would change, more treatment uh, options available for people who don't have insurance. I see. Uh, do you feel that uh, the uh, the Medicaid expansion that uh, I, I believe Pennsylvania uh, eventually did implement the Medicaid expansion, uh, mm -hmm. uh, do you feel like that, that is something that has helped uh, more people have access to treatment uh, services and facilities? I, I do. I do. I'm, there are, um, you know, more doctors that are... are um, able to prescribe things like Suboxone or uh, Methadone, things like that. Um, there, there definitely have been, Governor Wolf um, recently, well, probably it's it's been a couple months now, but declared the opioid crisis an emergency um, like, like, a, like a flood or a natural disaster, which um, allowed for a lot of funding to, to flow to a lot of these agencies. It lifted some of the barriers that, that people may have when it comes to things like, um, you know, uh, helping them get their birth certificates more, you know, efficiently and at a lower cost to help them get into drug treatment facilities. It allowed for um, a standing order in Pennsylvania now for naloxone at all area pharmacies, um, but we found recently that that hasn't quite happened, you know, to the level that officials are hoping it. Um, so I definitely have seen some, some changes when it comes to uh, government and the way that they're able to, to fund, the way that they're able to help people um, seek more treatment, and that's a great thing. 
but again, that we've learned recently at some of our roundtable discussions, there's still a lot of barriers there that um, it's it's difficult to to wrangle a, a state, a local, a federal agency, and make sure everybody's on the same board with providing services. But it does seem like there's starting to be more services available um, to lower income and and those without insurance in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, there's a saying that good journalism makes the important interesting. Um, and I'm curious, uh, what sort of techniques do you try to use in your reporting to achieve that ideal? Um, I, I think that our editors have always pushed us to um, be as in-depth, be as expansive, be as, um, take as long as you need to to make a really great story. Um, if something happens, um, I think for a lot of news agencies with the 24-hour news cycle, it's it's easy to be very re reactionary and want to turn something around really quickly and get it up on the web and let our readers know about it. And that way. Um, but I feel like the editors here and the reporters have really... Um, push themselves to tell really compelling stories and do it in a way that is is fair, is accurate, is interesting, has a lot of elements to it. Um, we, we don't feel rushed here to write a lot of these larger stories that we work on. We're, we're able and, and given the time to do it, and our editors always encourage us to speak to as many people as possible, speak to experts, go out and knock on doors if you have to, come through public records. Um, so I'm, I feel like I'm really fortunate to work somewhere that quality is given, um, quality is, is, is prized more than quantity, for sure. Um, telling a compelling story and doing it in a variety of different ways by using a variety of methods is, is really important here. Um, using uh, using different methods like a podcast, which we just recently started here within the past couple months, um, videos, uh, you know, photos, uh, online uh, elements have, are really important uh, features here, and luckily we have the staff and the support to be able to do those. Right. Uh, I guess... You know, uh, what you were saying about, you know, the 24-hour news cycle and sort of, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times on the evening news there will be some sound bite that will focus on, you know, statistics like overdose deaths or the economic cost of the crisis. And uh, I think it's very important, like the kind of reporting you do that presents, you know, a, a more personal narrative that people can relate to. Uh, as yeah, I mean, that's that to me is, you know, I, I, I want a a story that, as a reader, draws me in because of of a human element. You know, it's um, facts and figures and and numbers are incredibly important. Um, but um, being able to tell somebody's story with, you know, their you know their either their words or my words to me is is really important. And and again, I think that's the only way we're going to erase the stigma going to be able to um, teach people more about addiction is is human stories um, and you know I'm always as a reporter 
you know, I've told other reporters this many times. I'm always surprised that, like, if I knock on somebody's door, if I call them, if I send them an email, that, you know, people are so willing to share their stories because they want to help others. And I hear that over and over again. You know, if I can share a story about my son's overdose death and it helps one person, then I'm willing to do that. Um, and that, to me, still really strikes a chord that, you know, these people just want to help. They want um, people to be aware of addiction. They want to help others not meet the same fate that their loved one did. Um, and that's still really important to me to try to reveal those in my stories. And uh, I guess in addition to you know, the you know, your coverage and your team's coverage and uh, the other initiatives you've uh, taken, uh, including the podcast, um, what other resources would you recommend to members of the public who would like to know more about the opioid crisis? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, so our county agencies, uh, the county drug and alcohol agencies are kind of amazing. Um, and, and I push those all the time to people for for people who, who have a loved one that they want to find help for or, you know, want to learn more about, the opioid crisis, you know, calling your county's drug and alcohol agencies is really a great, great step. Um, In one of the counties that we cover here, Northampton County, they have a drug court. So people with drug offenses and non-violent criminal offenses um, meet with judges and and, um, staff members and and politicians and um, drug counselors every week and talk about their struggles, try to find answers to their problems. I have a criminal record now. How do I get a job? Or I can't open up a bank account because I don't have a job. I need to find a place to live. And those hearings are actually open to the public. Um, that's another thing that I've told people to sit in on drug court and just see what it's like. Like you, you'll be amazed to learn, you know, how how difficult recovery is, but that it's possible, and how it takes a lot of people and a lot of support for that to happen. Um, I've, I, I think that's a, a really great resource that people could go in and just sit in and listen and, um, you know, see how this affects somebody's life on a daily basis. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, there I, I talked about town meetings. Um, those are happening more and more in a lot of communities, you know, opioid awareness or or, you know, talking about addiction, uh, go to those and, and listen to people's stories and and there's experts there that can talk about how it's affecting the community. It's not just affecting the people whose loved ones are addicted, it, it affects the community as a whole. Um, and learning about education and trying to teach kids as early as possible about addiction, about the opioid crisis, I think is really important too. So... Um, and, and you know, if you know of somebody who has a loved one that is suffering from addiction, don't be afraid to talk to them and ask questions and offer support. Um, I think a lot of times, unfortunately, families feel um, ashamed and embarrassed to talk about it. So I think if you have somebody, you know, in your circle of friends or family that you know is going through this, to just be able to offer a few words of encouragement and support, I think, would make a huge difference, and it would um, make us all more willing to listen to each other and and share these stories and support each other, for sure. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so I think that's all the questions that I have. Uh, were there any additional thoughts or ideas that you would like to share? Not uh, off the top of my head, but I hope that, um, it, you know, if people are listening to your podcast and they're in a community where they don't see a lot of the opioid crisis in their media coverage, um, I, I encourage them to reach out to the newspapers, the TV, the podcasters, you know, bloggers, and and try to get the word out and ask, you know, is this happening in, in our community and, and what can we do to help it? Um, you know, it's uh, it's happening everywhere across the state. It's happening everywhere across the country. There's no doubt uh, that it's going to continue to keep happening. So I hope that... You know, the more discussions publicly that there are about it, the closer we can come to uh, helping stem the tide of death and and understand more about addiction as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's great. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast. So thank you. Seriously, really, thank you for reaching out and talking to me. I think it's a really important topic, and I never get t- tired of <laughs> talking about it. It's really important to me. So, you know, I, I really appreciate being able to share my thoughts and, and um, you know, hear, hear other people's ideas, too, when it comes to covering this topic. So, Okay. No, no, thank you so much for, your, you know, this interview and, like, your responses were so detailed and so informative. And, oh, uh, thanks. It's really helpful. And uh, what I'll do... Uh, in terms of my process, I'll have a transcript of this interview uh, prepared, and then I'll uh, run it by you so you, you can look it over to see if you want to make any edits or changes and things like that, uh, and then uh, I'll put it up on the uh, podcast website. And, uh, and what I'll also do is, I, you know, on the transcript, I can uh, also include, you know, links to some of the articles you've written as well oh, as things okay. like, you know, your podcast and things like that, so that that's also there uh, for people who want to check, that, check it out. So. And can I tweet it in social media that and all that when it's when it's all ready? Yeah, uh, mind, I'm assuming. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah sure, okay. sure. Absolutely. Okay. Great. Thank you for asking me to do this. And if you have any questions or if there's something that's not clear in the meantime, feel free to give me a call or shoot me an email. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Okay. Great. Thanks, Jamal. You're doing great work. So uh, keep, keep going. Uh, thanks, and and you as well. You know. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Opioid Voices podcast. I'm Amanda Hiraishi, the executive producer. Opioid Voices is part of the American Opioid Project, a crowdsourced encyclopedia of the opioid crisis that will help the public understand how the crisis was experienced in all 50 states from a variety of perspectives. Share your story today by visiting www.americanopioid.org.